Welcome to the New Life Podcast, a ministry of New Life Presbyterian Church in Ithaca, New York. Join us for worship each week at 10 o'clock at 950 Danby Road, Ithaca, New York. You can also visit us on our website, www.newlifeithaca.org. Now here's this week's sermon. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Tim has asked me to preach from Exodus 20, which we have read already earlier in the service. Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, where we find um, one of the most famous uh, familiar texts in the whole Bible, and which is the, the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, uh, the Thou Shalt Nots, uh, the Law. And so this morning, as we come to the text, uh, my goal is, is two things. One is to help you with an approach to the Ten Commandments, and then to appreciate uh, the significance of the First Commandment. Uh, as I'm not going to, uh, don't worry, I'm not going to go through the whole whole Ten Commandments uh, exposition, we'd be here till Christmas. You know, we've uh, always had a love-hate relationship with the law. Uh, We don't like it when it restricts how we live. Um, Curfew at 10 p.m. Footnotes must be in Chicago style. No swimming in the gorges. And we love it when it grants us freedom to live the way that we want to live. And more often than not, when it protects and privileges my tribe, many critics of Christianity have rejected the offer of the gospel to find forgiveness and acceptance as a gift from God because they're put off by what they perceive as a religion of rule-keeping or because they see many Christians in a nationalistic fervor for law-making power. But God has given us the Ten Commandments as a gift 
But we do have a love-hate relationship with law. Law can never be viewed abstractly. Law never exists without a lawgiver. I mean, the laws which shape how we live as, as Americans, or for whatever country may, you may call home, uh, are codified by our government, and our courts are kept busy with the endless wrangling over what those laws mean and how they are to be applied. And the laws which shape how we uh, live as God's people are those given to us by God. Uh, pastors and teachers are charged to help us figure out just how to apply God's word to all of life. So law cannot be viewed abstractly. Um, we uh, keep God's law and the relationship between those uh, who keep the law and the lawgiver intact. And also, law cannot be defined independently. It is, by definition, a code that gives shape and order uh, to the way people live together. We call someone a vigilante when she takes the law into her own hands. When someone disregards the law, uh, we may say that he has become a law unto himself, an outlaw. The rules of baseball do not apply differently to each player. Rather, the laws of baseball unite, shape, and order the way everyone plays the game together. So law can't be viewed abstractly. It cannot, it's, it is, cannot be defined independently. And thirdly, law can, cannot exist without love. Law is essential to love. There's the quotation at the, in the opening of the bulletin. Augustine says, all commandments end in love because they all begin with love. Love cannot exist without law because love always involves a choice. Law delineates our choices about how we will live and how our lives will be ordered. And law forms and shapes the expression we give to love. It has always been this way from the beginning of human history. I mean, first note how Jesus summarizes the ten words. His summary isn't unique. He's drawing on what Moses has written in several places. The whole law can be summed up in this statement. Love. Love the Lord your God with your whole being, with every part of your being, with a being united and made whole by love. Love the Lord your God with your whole being and without pausing to catch his breath, he continues, love your neighbor as yourself, love as you yourself so deeply long to be loved. To love God and one another, even in the beginning in the garden, was to choose to love the one who created us or to supplant him with another God. In the beginning, the law, positively to rule, work, and keep, negatively not to eat, was given that we might know how to express love for God and necessarily by extension how to love one another. And this means that every moment of human history has heard the charge of Joshua, choose today whom you will serve. Choose today whom you will love. And the only good answer is him only will we serve. Him alone Will we love? I mean, Jesus faced this choice every moment of his life. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus learned obedience. 
Or as Jesus says of his own life, I do as the Father has commanded me. I obey the law of God so that the world may know that I love the Father. John 14. Do you remember Jesus' temptation? All the things that Satan held before him were good things that Jesus desired deeply. The kingdom and the glory promised him by the Father. Food for his body racked with hunger. Trust in the Father's presence and protection. But his choices, his responses to temptation revealed his love for and his allegiance to the Father. He responds to Satan, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus' reply echoes the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, that is, the Lord alone is our God. And we will love and worship him alone. It echoes the psalmist in Psalm 95. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Love and loyalty to God are inextricably wrapped up in the word, in what God has spoken and what has been preserved for us in scripture. Love and law come together in covenant which is how God speaks of his relationship with us. His word, his law, is inseparable from love. And that is what we see in the beginning of our text today. The philosopher Alistair McIntyre warns us that moral principles, and the ten words are certainly that, must not become disconnected from the context, the basis upon which their significance derives. And that is absolutely true when we look at the Ten Commandments. Before we wrestle with anything we do, we begin with what God has already done. Before we wrestle with anything that we do, we begin with what God has already done. Before we get to the list, the text tells us that we should concentrate on what comes first. And what comes first is grace and mercy. What comes first is the loving kindness of God. Paul puts it this way in his pastoral counsel to young pastor Titus. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. In verse 8, I want to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. But the devotion to doing what is good comes after the acknowledgement that what we possess is because of the kindness and love and boundless mercy of God. John Dixon writes that salvation is not a reward for the good life, but salvation that is the kindness and mercy that has been given to us, is the inspiration for the good life. So what is it that comes before our famous text, these ten words in Exodus 20? What comes before them? Well, don't be blown over by this answer, but Exodus 1 to 19 is what comes first. Nineteen chapters come before the list It is the story of God's supernatural deliverance. 
God's people being set free from the slavery of Egypt. The firstborn son dies and God's people pass under the blood of the lamb. All the gods of the world have been exposed as powerless and false. The mighty political engine of the world, draped in all the ornamentation of power and human splendor, has been humiliated before the unseen God, the creator of heaven and earth. God's people pass through the sea. They pass under the cloud. They stand at the foot of the mountain, and Moses descends, his skin shining with the glory absorbed from God's presence. And in his hand, he holds the tables of stone inscribed by the very finger of God. And he speaks the word of God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's where we begin God's inexplicable, extravagant mercy. Until the exodus led by Jesus when he rose from the dead, this exodus led by Moses is the great story of salvation and redemption, the gift of deliverance given to God's people, told over and over again, generation after generation. And before God tells us what he asks of us, before he directs us about how we are to live in the world, he tells us who we are. He says this, I have set you free. You are my people. Now, let me tell you how to respond, how to show your love for me. Let me tell you what new life looks like in your new home. The gift of grace and mercy always precede our response of faith and obedience. And without grace and mercy, obedience is just duty on the hamster wheel of life. God's amazing supernatural deliverance comes first. And when we see it and believe it, we respond. And we can never be his people because we have measured up to his holy demands. Only the one who has stood in our place has done that. As Jesus said of his own life, I have come to fulfill the law. Why? Because we can't. I've come to do all that the Father has asked of me. Why? Because our relationship to God is never based on our performance or anything that we have earned. But grace and mercy always come first. We are loved with the infinite, omnipotent kindness of God before we have a clue how to respond. Before we understand what to do with this new life that we've been given. You see why the, the context is so absolutely essential. It completely changes how we read what comes next. It completely reshapes how we hear these ten words. Yes, the ten words are about the holiness of God, about how we are to live in his presence. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Before me. This is not just before me as in higher priority. It's, it's okay to have a hundred gods as long as Yahweh is the number one God. No. Before me as in absolute exclusivity. No gods but me alone. And also before me as before his face. God is teaching us how to live in his holy presence. We take off our shoes because we are on holy ground always everywhere, on the playground, in the classroom, in the lab, in the bathroom, in the bedroom, on the tennis court. 
But we are the Son returning to the Father, covered in the filth of the pigsty. But the Father has put his robe over us and has put his ring on our finger. And we stand in his presence before him, clothed in his righteousness. We stand before him as his sons and daughters. You may remember Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 in that famous scene where he comes into the temple. He comes in to worship. And he is undone. He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And instantly the angel takes a coal from the altar and places it upon his lips. And he is clean. He can stand in God's presence because of God's mercy. And then God says, who will go for me? Who can I send? Once again, God's mercy precedes what we do. The Lord says, as my beloved, as one I have made holy and righteous by the perfect life and atoning death of your older brother, have no other gods before me. Love and worship me only. Yield to my claim on your life. I am your king. Do not bow your knee to another, but humble yourself before me that I may raise you up with honor and glory. In many ways, this first commandment is the one word to rule them all. Live in my presence and worship me alone. No graven images. Do not create in in your mind or with your hands in, in ways I have not revealed myself to you or you will worship what you create instead of me. Do not misuse my name. My name is not a mantra by which you can unlock blessing or power. Such lust for power will tempt you to believe that you are God. Rather, speak back to me what I have revealed to you about myself. Honor your parents because I am your father and you honor me more than your earthly father. Do not murder. Seek the flourishing of all who bear my image because I am the Lord of life. Do not violate one another sexually even as Jesus has kept himself holy for his beloved nor do we approve as is seemingly more popular these days of polyamory because the the singularity of our covenantal marital fidelity declares our greater singular loyalty to God alone. Do not steal because you live knowing that every good gift, every perfect provision comes from your Father. Daily bread is enough. Do not lie because you want to speak the truth about the God you honor and serve. Do not covet because you are content with God himself. He is enough. In all these ways we bend our lives to the ark of his will that we might declare to ourselves and to all who know us, Jesus is Lord. He is the king of our life together. And we love him because he first loved us. We give him our lives. We walk in his presence and serve him alone. In our relationships, in our work, in our creativity, we are not detached. But as Christopher Wright says, we are distinctively engaged with all of life. Oh, but I missed the fourth commandment, didn't I? What about that fourth commandment? You know, the ten words are often divided into four and six. The first four express our love for God. The final six express our love for neighbors. 
But I'm somewhat partial to dividing them up this, this way, three, one, and six. Because the fourth commandment is a hinge between love of God and love of neighbor. Sabbath is the space in which heaven and earth come together, where worship of God and service to neighbor are linked. Sabbath is the space in which the clutter of life is cleared away so that we may see the one we love most more clearly. But it is the space in which we recalibrate life in the world to focus on the kingdom of God and the mission of God. Sabbath is the space in which we say together as his people, O God, you are my God. And I will ever praise you. I will seek you in the morning. I will learn to walk in your ways. And step by step you'll lead me. And I will follow you all of my days. Sabbath is the space in which we feast. The table spread in the presence of our enemy anticipating the great day of consummation. Sabbath is the space in which we learn to be faithful Mandalorians. This is the way. Some of you got that. You need to watch more TV. The commandments of God are given to his people for our life in the world as a way for us as his people to declare our love and loyalty to him. And this means that the law of God has only limited value for people who do not give their loyalty to our king, to friends and neighbors who still serve other gods. To be sure, their lives will be somewhat better if they don't steal or lie and if they are faithful in marriage. But what is the purpose for them if they do not live in this way as an act of worship, as an act of living before the face of God? I must confess that I am not very enthusiastic about plastering the Ten Commandments in public spaces. They're just a list of do-good rules that they're separated from the gospel. The ten words are meant for God's people, people he has redeemed and called to himself, people whose lives he inhabits in his loving presence. The good life can be no better than the good which animates that life. And I believe that apart from the lens of the gospel, people will look at the ten rules as a way they believe they can make God happy and try to find a good life, not of grace, but of their own creation. What does it look like to live with no other gods before me, to live with unrivaled loyalty to our king? Oh, there's some great examples throughout redemptive history. Let me think of Job, who has lost everything. He's lost everything that's dear to him, his family. His body is, is racked with disease. And yet he believes the gospel. And he entrusts himself to the God who holds him. And he says, even if he slays me, even if he kills me, I will continue to trust him. It is Bonhoeffer going back to Germany when he could have stayed safely in America and he goes back to stand with his people knowing that he will be arrested and hang because of his loyalty to Jesus. It is Mary being visited by the angel, hearing the word that she will be given a child, realizing that she for the rest of her life, will 
be considered an outcast. And yet, she hears this word of what God is doing. And she says with this this great trust in her king, may it be to me according to your word. But supremely, we go to the garden. We see Jesus sweating drops of blood, agonizing in anguish about what awaits him, pleading with the Father, is there another way? Must I go to the cross? Must I be separated from you? Must I go to hell? But he says the words that we are called to say every day of our lives. Not my will, but may your will be done. I don't have to remind you that we're surrounded by the seductions of idolatry to give our allegiance to the myriads of false gods of our day. You, you know, their pull can be overwhelming and suffocating. We're tempted constantly to believe the alluring lies of social media, of political power, of sexual gratification. Christopher Wright puts it this way, pride, greed, and aggression in the form of nationalism, consumerism, militarism still elevate themselves into idolatrous status in our modern Western cultures. The old gods may have changed their names or lost their personal names altogether in favor of more abstract concepts and phrases, patriotism, free market, economic growth, national security, etc. But they can still wield enormous power in the popular mindset, power we ourselves give to them as deified human constructs. And they still tend to solidify and justify the power of the powerful and the wealth of the wealthy and the sacrifices of the rest. This is what false gods demand. But idols can never deliver what they promise. They can only destroy. And yet, how can we resist them? Through the means of grace in our life, together, allied in our loyalty to our king. We will come to the table in just a moment to renew our covenant and to declare together the loyalty to our God that unites our lives and unites our hope. In the bread and the cup, we claim again God's promise to satisfy every longing, to make right all that is wrong, to be present with us forever. This regular, repentant, covenant renewal is so powerfully expressed in the words of the South African Cape Town commitment. In these words, the people of God either walk in the way of the Lord or walk in the ways of other gods. The Bible shows that God's greatest problem is not just with the nations of the world, but with the people he has created and called to be the means of blessing to the nations. And the biggest obstacle to fulfilling that mission is idolatry among God's own people. For if we are called to bring the nations to worship the only true and living God, we fail miserably if we ourselves are running after the false gods of the people around us. And when there is no distinction in conduct between Christians and non-Christians, For example, the practice of corruption and greed or sexual promiscuity or the rate of divorce or relapse into pre-Christian religious practices or attitudes toward people of other races or consumerist lifestyles or social prejudice, then the world is right to wonder if our Christianity makes any difference at all. Our message carries no authenticity to a watching world. 
First, we challenge one another as God's people in every culture to face up to the extent to which, consciously or unconsciously, we are caught up in the idolatries of our surrounding culture. We pray for prophetic discernment to identify and expose such false gods and their presence within the church itself, and for the courage to repent and renounce them in the name and the authority of Jesus as Lord. And secondly, because since there is no biblical mission without biblical living, We urgently recommit ourselves and challenge all those who profess the name of Christ to live in radical distinctiveness from the ways of the world, to put on the new humanity created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's hear those words from our South African brothers and sisters. But hear also the words of the apostle, to the apostle Paul, to the idol-ridden church of Corinth, He writes, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. And we know that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things and and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. So as the creator commissioned his image bearers in the beginning to so live that his kingly rule would be a blessing to the flourishing of the whole earth, so the Savior sends us to the ends of the world and into every area of culture. Withdrawal is not an option. We are to live and announce the good news. Our God reigns. Come, worship Him and love Him with hearts made whole and lives made new. Once again, today, I call you to choose whom you will serve. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Please rate and review us on your podcast service and share with anyone who may be interested. The intro and outro music for the New Life podcast is provided by Sandra McCracken with her permission. Please visit her website at sandramccracken.com. We'll see you next week.